UWO Now. I'm Wendell Ray. UWO Now is a place where we discuss relevant and interesting topics with the students, staff, and faculty at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. Welcome and thanks for joining us. The other day, and for the last several days, I've kind of been binging after I saw this one program on the History Channel where some Egyptian archaeologists uh, discovered a new tomb in Egypt near the uh, Steppe Pyramid. And I watched the show as the scientist um, opened up a tomb and found bones and fragments of pottery and old statues and were reading hieroglyphs and how excited they were to be in this place that had not been entered uh, was in pristine condition, had not been entered, and we're trying to kind of reconstruct the life of this man who lived, they believe, more than 4,000 years ago. And it was just captivating and interesting stuff. And and every show now that I see that talks about uh, these types of finds and digs, I'm watching it. Uh, and we're going to talk today. Uh, with someone who is familiar with that type of work on you. Uh, we're going to talk today with someone who does that today on UWO Now, and that is Dr. Jordan Karsten, who is an associate professor of anthropology and the department chair of the Department of Anthropology at UWO. He's our guest today on UWO Now. Jordan, thanks very much for coming by and talking to us. Hey, thanks for having me. You are an anthropologist. Is that the archaeologist, anthropologist? Yeah, I mean, archaeology is part of anthropology. So my degrees are in anthropology. Uh, and some of us focus on ancient human material culture, so the artifacts or ancient bones. Not all of us do. Um, it's a really highly varied discipline. But, you know, like in terms of the, the folks you see on the History Channel, some Egyptologists are anthropologists, some are historians. Um, but most of the time, archaeologists are anthropologists. And so we're interested in reconstructing um, you know, the, the ancient world and what it was like to be a human living hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of years ago. Take us back before you got the PhD. What interested you in this? How did you get into this from the beginning? Well, to be honest, I went to college and my dad owned a carnival business. And so, really? yeah. And, and it was okay. hard work. Oh, I see the connection there. Yeah. <laughs> it's not maybe what you would expect, but he owned a carnival business and it was hard work. And so I was like, I'm going to college. Went to college and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I thought maybe I'd get into some kind of medical field. And I ended up in a gen ed class in a cultural anthropology class. So a class that looked at, you know, human cultures, living human cultures and human cultures of the recent past. And I was just captivated by how different human societies can be. And before that semester was over in that class, I had declared anthropology as my major. And I really didn't know much about archaeology and the rest. Uh, at that point, I got introduced to it, you know, as I moved through that program. And I just, I was hooked. And by the time I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I was ready to make sure that I could get the highest degree in that field that I possibly could just out of curiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then it turned into a career, which is also a good thing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and, and it's, you know, it's a big part of my life doing what you love. That's it. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it was, 
I just found something that I loved because of general education requirements. And I honestly don't even feel like I work any day. I mean, every day is some is what I want to be doing because I'm interested in in the field of anthropology and I get to I'm lucky enough to to deal with it every day and and, and kind of make it my life's work. I bet you remember the first field experience that you had. Oh yeah, I mean the first field experience I had was actually in western Ukraine. And so I had one of my professors, they knew people who were archaeologists in Ukraine and they were going to go and help them with an excavation. And so I was an undergraduate and they took me along and I'll never forget it. It was kind of like what you just described with the tombs in mm -hmm. Egypt. We went down into a cave and the cave was used as a burial ground and probably a, like a ritualistic space by these people who lived in Europe between five and 6,000 years ago. Wow. So really old. And these were the first people wow. who ever farmed in Eastern Europe. And so, I mean, that was like new technology. How do you know that? Do you, know that? Uh, you know, that's the fascinating part of yeah. it. It's not just walking into a cave for me. You know, and when I watch the programs, that's all I know about it, of course. When I watch them walk into a site, a cave or wherever it might be, and I, they see... Uh, drawings on the wall or they find an old artifact, a tool or something like that. What, what then becomes interesting to me is how these experts like you are able then to tell us who these people were and what they did. Now, how, how do you go into a cave, find some bones and some shards of pottery or whatever it might be, uh, uh, an arrowhead, I don't know, uh, and then come to conclusions or uh, some sort of theory about what these people did on a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, anthropologists who study archaeology can look at very little pieces of information and eventually reconstruct this stuff. And so, for instance, for this group of people that we studied, they're called the Trapillians. It's a name that archaeologists have invented for them. Mm -hmm. um, but what we can see is that they have domesticated animal bones, and we can date the site using radiocarbon dating, and so we say, okay, well, they've got domesticated cows, they've got domesticated sheep and goats. Um, and if we go to the group of people that was there in Eastern Europe right before them, they didn't. And so if we go dig their sites, you know, all you find is wild deer that they were hunting, wild horses that they were hunting, um, you know, aurochs, which is like a wild cow that they were okay. hunting. And we can do the same thing with plant remains. And so for the people that we studied in this cave, um, you know, we found the remains of wheat and, and botanists, paleobotanists can find the remains of, you know, charred grains, of cereals that were had, that were domesticated, that were farmed. And the people before them just didn't have it. And that you, you found grains and charred grains have been found in ceramics wow. there in the cave. And then okay. other archeologists who study these, the same group of people, um, they found it at other sites. And so we can reconstruct how they were making their living. And it was very different from the people that came right before them. When you were in this cave for the first time, uh, you know, kind of tell us what it was like for you as a young man who was on his first dig. I mean, it's crazy. I, to me, I'd never really been in caves before, number one. And so you walk down into this cave, a gypsum cave, and as you go in, it's, it's dark. I mean, you have, you have to let your eyes adjust. But we had headlamps and this kind of stuff, you know, modern equipment to be able to walk in. But in your mind's eye, you could picture what it must have been like 5,000, 6,000 years ago. And so you walk in, it's all gypsum everywhere, which kind of sparkles in the light. And mm. I just imagined myself holding a torch or something like that, walking down into this cave. 
And the ancient people there had carved out a huge boulder out of the roof of this cave and placed it on stone supports. And so, I mean, if you think about being in a time before TikTok and a time before, you know, YouTube, and then you walk in and, you know, you're underground essentially and the flames are flicking off the walls and then you see this huge boulder up on supports. And then on top of that, you see you know, human skeletal remains, ancestors of these people who have been buried in the cave, placed there, small figurines that are probably ritualistically, religiously significant, maybe even hanging from the ceiling. It would have been, you know, mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing I thought right when I walked into this cave. And then it gets, it just gets better from there because, I mean, you go in and try to explore places to excavate and you're crawling on your hands and knees in tunnels where... I mean, there's no space to really even take a full breath. And you're shimmying shimmying through these tunnels, eventually finding chambers where you can dig and find these artifacts, sometimes whole pots, and these little figurines and human remains that have never been seen in five, 6,000 years. And I mean, that is, I mean, the thrill of discovery, I mean, you can't beat it. You just can't. Especially when you think you could be the first person who's seen this place since the last person. For sure. I mean, I think that's the case a lot of the times, even to the point where when we've been excavating, the the ancient folks who used the cave would take bone and turn them into needles, basically, like a, like a bone awl. Gotcha. And I've had it where I've dug up a bone awl and it's pricked my finger. It's still sharp, you know, 5,000, 6,000 years later, and your finger's bleeding, you wow. know, or stone tools, a stone knife that when you dig, cuts through the glove, the work glove that you're using. And so, I mean, that's the, I mean, to think that nobody's probably touched that in all those thousands of years, and then that it's still that sharp, uh, you know, it's a real wild thing to be a part of. Now, one thing that I've always wondered is this, for instance, this cave that you were on as a young man, Mm -hmm. who knew to go into that cave? Did someone find somebody, somebody just stumbled upon it or did some, was there uh, an idea that we ought to explore this area, this part of this country, this particular site? Because there may be something in there. Yeah, I mean, where this cave was in western Ukraine, uh, back in the 19th century, this was part of Poland. And some of the Polish landowners, like some of the folks that worked for them, had accidentally found this cave when they saw an animal crawl inside. And so they had, you know, kind of stuck their head in a hole in the ground. And then they saw this open chamber and inside whole pots and human bones. And when the first guy stuck his head in, he thought that he had entered hell, basically. <laughs> and so he busted out of there. And then they organized this whole village, uh, you know, way back in the 1800s to go in and excavate. And they took up big things of wine to drink. And it was a big deal. And so they done an initial discovery way back 150 plus years ago, you know, almost 200 years ago. And they had started to work there. And that was really great. And then scientists have just continued to go back. And the site, this cave site so big that people have just worked there periodically for this whole time. And we could keep working there for the rest of our lives. We'll never excavate it all. You're listening to UWO Now. I'm Wendell Ray, and I'm talking today uh, with Dr. Jordan Karsten, who is the department chair and associate professor of anthropology at the University of Wisconsin, Oshkosh. Um, So that's your first dig. And I would imagine you've done subsequent digs since then and, um, where else have you been or do you, have you stayed primarily in the Ukraine? 
Well, we stayed, I mean, for in terms of archaeological work, in terms of digs and discovery, this kind of thing, it was mostly in Ukraine up until COVID hit. And so I took UWO students there um, oftentimes twice a year. We'd go in January for a few weeks. We'd go in the summer for a few weeks. And they just volunteer to come help me with the site. Um, but since then, I've because I haven't been able to travel to Ukraine after COVID and now for the, the war with the Russians, um, I've focused mostly on sites in Wisconsin and they haven't been archeological, but I've been working with law enforcement in order to help discover clandestine burials or if bones pop up since I'm a skeletal specialist, like that's my kind of realm is the human skeleton. I help them with, um, with forensic cases whenever they find bones and, and need to know who they belong to and how those people died. Uh, we want to talk about that as well. But you mentioned your specialty is in human bones. That's right. So, um, and have you detect, what What do you, when you find a bone, how are you the, what, what's the process of identifying uh, who that person was, male, female, how old they may have been? Tell us how you go through that process and how long does it take to make those types of uh, um, decisions on who this person was? Sure. I mean, so we we rely on, you know, kind of markers on the skeleton to do this. A lot of times we get bones. I get bones turned over to me from law enforcement once a week. Almost always they're animal. Mm. But we rely on the big difference between human and all humans and all the rest of the animals in Wisconsin is the fact that people walk on two legs and all the rest of the mammals are running around on all fours. And this results in some anatomical differences that are really obvious if you know where to look. And so that's the first thing, like, is it human or not? Mm -hmm. Then if we want to know, okay, is it, you know, male or female? Um, if we think it's, for, you know, especially forensically significant, we rely on the kind of inherent biological differences between the sexes, which we call sexual dimorphism. And there are differences in the size of males and females, with males being on the average a little bigger. So we can use measurements to determine that. And then a really big one is the fact that females have a major evolutionary selective pressure on their pelvis to accommodate birthing large-headed infants, and males just don't have that. And so our, our pelvises look very different in terms of their, not just size, but in terms of their shape and form. And so we can rely on specific indicators there to pretty accurately tell if somebody was a male or a female. There's similar kind of things for age where we can look at markers for growth development, arthritis, mm -hmm. um, you know, things that, that show that a skeleton's breaking down, um, you know, kind of as, as people get older that we can use to, to, to get an idea of how old somebody was when they died. This, when I opened this show today, I talked about watching that, uh, special on uh, the History Channel about um, the Egyptologist who had, or the Egyptian archaeologist who found these bones and there was a woman there who who did just what you talked about in that she really kind of determined that this one woman that she found suffered from a degenerative bone disease or and had some issues with her maybe a some dental issues because sure. there was some swelling that she she discovered. So, uh, and then she kind of surmised that she how she may have had to walk because of this, and uh, how long her life, what her life may have been like as a result of those issues that she may have had uh, medically in, in in her life. So that's the kind of stuff you, you're talking about 
Yeah, I mean, we can do all of that stuff. And so, I mean, we do we use the same methods, basically, if it's a modern forensic case where we're trying to figure out who the person was that law enforcement found, or if I'm in a cave in western Ukraine and we're excavating ancient human skeletal remains, we can take a look at those bones, figure out, you know, the male, female, are they adults, you know, sub-adults? Did they suffer from diseases? And then, you know, for, in Ukraine, one of the things that we found that we think is quite interesting is most of the people in our cave were died a violent death. And so they died at the hands of other folks. And they've, you know, their heads were smashed in. And, and in fact, that finding that there's a lot of violence in prehistory is not unique to our cave. And so anthropologists, archaeologists who are working with skeletons and archaeological sites are able to even reconstruct things like the frequency of violent death, the frequency of warfare between groups. And so we can really put together, a, a, you know, an interesting picture of the past that informs us as to what it means to be human. I mean, one of the classic questions is, you know, are humans inherently violent or inherently peaceful? Well, we actually have objective scientific data that we can use to try to address that question, um, all using, you know, in, in that case, evidence from the human skeleton. This cave that you were in, in the Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of stuff going on. Was this a dwelling? Was this a burial site? Was it both? Well, I think that depends on who you ask. So some of, I mean, sometimes an archaeological kind of reconstruction of what happened, we, well, I guess when we put those together, we don't always agree. I mean, in my opinion, that cave is a burial site and a site that's ritualistically important. There was, you know, certain members of the community were buried there it, with feasts, probably. Um, did they ever live in the cave? They may have. What is interesting about the cave is that people probably sought refuge there. Like if things were going wrong and you needed to hide out, they hid in the cave. And in fact, that cave got used that way into the historic era. And so in World War II, when the Nazis pushed into, into Ukraine, um, Ukrainians hid in there. And then especially uh, Jews who lived in Western Ukraine hid in the cave from the Nazis. Then when the Soviets liberated Ukraine, Nazis hid in the cave from mm -hmm. the Soviets. <laughs> and Soviets actually hid in the cave from Nazis. And then the Ukrainian partisan army who were fighting for independence for the country were also in there. And so if we look at that historical kind of, you know, kind of parallel, did the ancient people use the cave the same way? You've got to imagine they probably did. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, yeah, exactly how it was used probably changed through time. But I have no doubt that that cave was used as a burial ground and and for ritualistically important kind of ceremonies. Because uh, I think as I remember you talking about how you discovered it, or it was discovered, it, it's not a great big opening, I guess, to a cave, but it no. opens into does. a large area. So, yeah, it can be kind of hidden uh, for a large group of people who are trying to get away. So that does make sense that it could have been refuge for someone. And it's in like in this part of Ukraine, it's called the four step. So like there are forested areas, but there are these huge expanses of fields. And so the entrance to this cave is actually just in a small depression in this giant, giant field removed from any villages. And so if you're just standing down in a village and looking out, all it looks like is a big field. But until you come right up upon the cave, you don't see this depression. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of a place to hide out, it'd be great. You uh, are a lifelong learner. Learning and being curious seems to be a part of your nature. When you got into this cave and, and beyond that, what you do on a regular basis, what are some of the things you can say that, wow, I, 
that were aha moments, so to speak, for you when you come to a site or you find a bone you, or you make a discovery? What are some things you can share with us that you've discovered that you, you know, were new to you even uh, after having done this for several years? Well, I don't know. I, f I feel like when you find any of these ancient artifacts or, you know, an ancient burial, it's you kind of have that moment every time. I mean, but well, we've discovered things, you know, whole pots, ceramic, you know, big, big pots, huge, uh, that never broke. And they, they had right. sat there and, you know, they had basically been buried in the sedimentation in this cave, but they're still as complete as the day that they were placed in the cave. And, um, you know, maybe that pot doesn't, you know, make or break our interpretation of the site, but just finding that unbroken, it gives you that kind of moment every time. And you have students with you sometimes on these digs, is that correct? And what, what's their role and how do you interact with them? What are they learning and how are they participating in these activities? Yeah, I mean, we always took students and they, uh, you know, they'd volunteer to come along and they would participate in the excavation. And sometimes it meant carrying buckets and a lot of times it meant digging, actually discovering. Um, and then after we do that, you know, that's the work just begins at that point because you need to clean the artifacts or the human remains and the skeletal remains, then inventory them um, and collect data that we can use, you know, in terms of trying to answer our research questions. And so they, they're engaged in all of those parts. And so it's, it's, a, it's a great experience, especially for people who want to make a career out of anthropology. And you, your expertise is in bones and identifying human remains. Uh, but there is a depth and breadth to anthropology that is more than just uh, discovering a bone or pottery. Uh, and there are lots of different experts in this field, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, it's one of the more varied disciplines probably you could find on campus. And so this conversation about anthropology is very different if you would just pull in a different faculty member. So I'm a skeletal expert and I do some archeology span and some forensics, this kind of stuff. But if you would have brought in Dr. Steph Spehar, she's a primatologist like Jane Goodall. And mm -hmm. so she goes out and she studied, you know, non-human primates, so monkeys in the Americas, and she studies orangutans in Borneo. And so, I mean, and the questions she asks are still, you know, kind of get back to what it means to be human in terms of evolutionary questions and this kind of stuff and specific to the primates, but she'd have a very different conversation with you. And that's one department. The same thing is, I mean, we have cultural anthropology is another part of it, which is what kind of got me into the field, but this is studying people who are alive today different and, you know, kind of documenting and asking questions about different cultural groups. And so you could have brought in Dr. Heidi Nichols from our department, and she would have had a very different conversation with you about anthropology. At its core, we're interested in what it means to be human, but we get at that through very different types of data. Maybe it's ancient archaeological data or evolutionary data from the skeleton or from our primate ancestors, or maybe it's looking at modern human cultures like Dr. Nichols would. We even look at linguistics. And so we look at different human languages, how they change, how we use language because it all comes back to what it means to be human. It's all anthropology. Um, and so we're all interested in each other's questions, but we just specialize in very different types of data collection. And so it's a in really interesting field to be a part of. Um, and the questions you can ask are just, I mean, so numerous because humans are so complex. Mm -hmm. And so it's, yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a wonderful discipline. I think very relevant discipline to modern times because you know, is the in the globalized world we live in, and with the amount of change we see in technology, 
really understanding humanity is 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 probably more important now than ever and and I think we can really help the world with that. What kind of uh, similarities are you finding maybe uh, when you go on a dig and you unearth something that existed thousands of years ago uh, and you make decisions about who these people were um, you say well that's kind of like how we are now. Yeah, I mean, in terms of a skeleton, I can't tell the difference between, you know, the skeletal biology of one of these ancient people versus somebody who's alive in Wisconsin today. I mean, they, there's not really obvious differences there. What is kind of interesting is with ancient bones, we can pull out DNA and we can actually study the genetics of these people, just like if you were going to send your own in to Ancestry.com mm. and or 23andMe. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, and so we can tell you, okay, these ancient people had, you know, they were lactose tolerant or not. And so even though these people were the first farmers, they weren't lactose tolerant. Which what about is really families? Weird. Can you? Oh yeah, you can identify families. So like yeah. in the burial groups, you could say, well, these people are related at this level because of the genetics. Just like if you were on the Maury mm -hmm. Povich show, right? <laughs> I mean, you are not the father. You are not the father. <laughs> it's the same kind of thing, right? And so like you can reconstruct that too for any given site. And I mean, we actually are able to reconstruct these huge migrations that took place in prehistory that we kind of had an inkling might have occurred, but we didn't really know. And now we can just demonstrate it. Like that, that there, there were these wholesale population turnovers that occurred, you know, with big groups migrating from certain parts of the globe to others and replacing populations that lived there. And I mean, it makes the story of humanity so interesting. Um, and it's so much more complex than probably a lot of people really appreciate. Uh, you're listening to UWO Now. I'm Wendell Rayan. I'm having a conversation today with Dr. Jordan Karsten, who is the department chair and associate professor of anthropology at UWO, talking about his experience as an anthropologist being on digs and, you know, what uh, that life is like, so to speak. He says he really doesn't feel like he's worked a day in his life because it's something that he loves to do. You mentioned uh, there are different types of anthropologists as well. Uh, linguistic anthropology seems like that would, how do you, figure out how people communicated with each other when you can't talk to them about how they communicated with each other. Oh, it's really wild stuff. I mean, it's not my personal area of expertise, but one of the things I love about it is linguistic anthropologists, they're, they're, they're geniuses. Some of them actually will reconstruct ancient languages. So they'll compare languages that exist today that people are speaking and they'll use old written languages and languages change based on rules like human language is predictable in terms of the way that it changes. And so you can use those rules to work backwards using the comparative method, comparing these different languages. And so, for instance, around the time of the people that I study in Ukraine, in the cave, their neighbors on the Eurasian steppe, so in the big grassland right there, mm -hmm. those folks were the people who spoke, as far as we can tell, basically proto-Indo-European. And the linguistic anthropologists actually know what words they used and the grammatical structure that they used and even the stories that they must have told each other, even though that language was never written down. Because they can compare Indo-European languages that exist today and ones that were written down to work back to this kind of hypothetical language that, that must have existed. And what's wild is... You know, those people that live there on the steppe, they eventually migrate out. And in that migration, they spread around Europe and Asia. And eventually, through time, their languages change in different places. And that migration 
is really the reason I'm speaking English to you right now. Mm, and so the combination okay. of archaeology and these linguistic anthropologists who are studying these ancient languages that must have existed and how they change, we can really put together this like pretty wild story of humanity. You have been involved here locally in the Wisconsin area um, uh, with some cases. And so you are not, as you mentioned, because of COVID, you couldn't go to the Ukraine and there weren't opportunities to do digs, but you still have kept busy. And so tell us about how you have used your expertise and how others have come to you uh, to help uh, with uh, cold cases here in the state of Wisconsin. Yeah, so I mean, I have, since I got here, helped out local law enforcement, and law enforcement throughout the state, if they find bones and they need to know if they're human or animal, they'll send me pictures and I help them out. And sometimes they're human and they need to know who this person was, mm. when they died, um, how they died. And so in those cases, I use that same kind of, the same skills I'd use on an archeological dig in a lot of ways um, to help law enforcement with those questions. And so, um, you know, depending on the day and the hour and the time of year, we can have a lot of them. I mean, we're working on a case right now from Wisconsin Rapids area, and they had a skeletonized individual who still had some modern clothes on, um, you know, discovered, and they needed help trying to figure out who this person was. And so we're working with those folks right now, actually, in an effort to identify this person who was found skeletonized in the Wisconsin River. So let me ask you uh, about these cases that you have uh, participated in. So there have been some that have made the news. Um, how did, and you pick one, how did uh, you get approached? Uh, how did you get involved? And then take us through the steps of these particular cases where you helped law enforcement identify someone. Yeah, I mean, probably one of the cases that has been in the news the most was when uh, we helped find a man who was murdered in Nina uh, back in the early 1980s. It was a, a man named Starkey Swenson. Yes. And so my students and I helped. We were asked by Winnebago County Sheriff's Office to go help in a search. They thought they had an idea of where he might be. Ran a class, excavated there, didn't find anything over the course of a couple months. Um, but in that one, you know, how the process started, I was getting my tooth filled actually at the dentist and I got a text message um, from a DNR conservation warden and he said, hey, uh, I've got this bone hikers found. The cr state crime lab said, send you this picture. You could tell me if it's human or animal. And I looked at it and I said, that's human. And so um, they eventually asked me to come there and see if I could see what happened. And we were able to find a skeleton uh, and after excavation and a and complete look, skeleton. Yep. And after excavation and all of this and looking at the actually there at bones and personal effects and such, you know, we were able to really have a good idea. It was the guy we were looking for all along, uh, Starkey Swenson. And so then at, at that point, you know, we did kind of the same stuff I talked to you about, which is looking at markers on the skeleton for sex. Is it male, you know, the skeleton male or female? Um, you know, and do you look at a particular bone? Or, the pelvis is so, the one we so, want. So is that the bone that you always start with? If it's there, okay. yeah, for All sex, right. for sure. And then we could look at other things, like we could measure long bones, like a femur, so your thigh or your mm -hmm. tibia, which is like your shin. And we can use statistical procedures to come up with a range that was all, you know 95% certain this person's height. 
And so we can reconstruct that and we can reconstruct, okay, based on features of the cranium, what was this person's ancestry or what a lot of people think of as a race? So Mm -hmm. was the person probably European in their ancestry or were they African or were they Native American? How do you do that? There are kind of tendencies in terms of the morphology, the shape, um, you know, the presence of certain traits or the absence of certain traits that we can use to actually come up with it. And it's not foolproof. It's like we're not going to tell you 100% that this is yeah. the person. But it does help sometimes if you're trying to identify somebody or do a missing person search. It's like in that one, you know, we kind of had an idea of who we had for for reasons that things that accompanied the skeleton. Um, and then eventually we can use DNA, right? I mean, so you can pull DNA out of bones to get a confirmation. But a lot of times in today's day and age, our work is, you know, kind of, okay, here's who we think it is. And then and we have maybe great reasons. And it gets com- confirmed with DNA a lot of times. Were there other, uh, other than the skeletal remains, were there fragments of clothing? Was there any other kind of stuff that, in this particular case, that helped you identify the body as well? Sure, definitely. And those were the things, right? I mean, fragments of clothing and other things on the person. But it's... uh. You get those, you know, you get clothes and even, you know, cases all the time that we get where you have a skeleton show up and part of the skeleton is still in either complete or fragmentary clothing. And what's nice is when for us in terms of trying to make the identification, if somebody's reported missing and somebody knows what they were wearing or what they might have had in their pockets um, at the time that they went missing, if you can find a skeleton and still find that stuff, I mean, you're a long ways down the road to making that identification. Wow. How long did that take for you in this particular case uh-huh. with Starkey Swenson? How long did it take from the time you actually were in the dentist's office to the time you said, okay, we're fairly certain this is who it was? How long was that? Only day? a few days. Okay. Yeah, only a few days. But the whole process, you know, an, uh, an anthropological analysis takes a long time. And so, like, after that, you know, to really do a thorough, complete job, you're talking about, you know, really weeks of time in terms of in terms of kind of getting the data that you need and then processing it in a way that uh, that you need to. And and so that it's it's a it's a time and a kind of intensive thing to do, depending on how many bones are found for any given forensic case. Now, do you write a report? Does a the investigating officers, the, the department, who writes the report that says, okay, this is the guy? That's me. So, I mean, I'll, as long as that, you know, our ability to identify is within the skeleton, then that would go into my report. But, you know, if we work a case and let's say we have dental remains and we have an idea of who somebody might be because I said, well, it's a female and it's somebody who's maybe in their 20s and it's she's probably a white female and she's probably 5'2 to 5'6. Well, we might be able to do a missing person search and go, well, in Winnebago County, there's only two people that this could be. And so we have, if we have if we're lucky enough to have teeth and those teeth have fillings or or other appliances or even if, you know, the people that we think it might be have good x-rays, we can take x-rays of the the remains that we find and you can bring in a forensic dentist who will do a point-by-point comparison and you can get an identification there that's just as good as DNA. And so, you know, the, and it's faster and it's cheaper and it's, uh, mm-hmm. and so, you know, all those kind of things are all these different avenues that we try to go down whenever we're working one of these cases. Now, are these always cases that make the news or sometimes do you identify some bones that uh, nobody even knew there was a case or it doesn't make the news? Sure, that happens more frequently than when it makes the news. And so like in the last year, 
you know, we found Starkey Swenson and that made the news because we were already on the news a little bit with me and my students looking for him. And he had, it was a big mystery for the Fox Valley. So that one definitely made the news. Um, but then we've had even just that last year, we had numerous cases where we helped go search for, locate, and then identify people that really didn't. Um, they they might have made a slight, you know, kind of mention, but oftentimes there's nothing, it's people, it's, especially when there's no foul play or there's other times where we work a case and we might find a skeleton, it might be modern, we might be able to tell you, okay, it's male or it's female or whatever. Um, but then if nobody ever reported them missing, we can't tell you who it is. Mm. And so some mm. of those cases don't wow. make the news really at all. Um, or if they do, they're, you know, pretty brief mentions. So the, the amount of coverage you get for any one of these cases is highly variable depending on the case itself. I mean, are we talking about how, how many of these are, how many, how, how busy are you is I guess the question. And I mean, it's not like you're identifying four or five bodies a week, but how, how, how busy are you? Actually, I probably did four or five in the last two weeks. No way. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> this last couple of weeks have been kind of busy, but not always. Like earlier in the summer, we weren't that busy. Um, you know, in a standard year for me, like a, a case that actually has many Wait, bones. Wait, excuse me. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. But yeah, yeah, yeah. these are human bodies, bones, or just bones that you're finding? Human bones, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't find them. I, I didn't personally find any of these in the last, uh, the last couple of weeks, but law enforcement did and came to me with them. So it can be busy. I mean, it definitely can. Um, but sometimes it's not. So like winter, we don't do anything, but we also get called when you have a fire. Like, so if like we have a big house fire and people end up being basically cremated to bone, then we get called into, but yeah, you can have busy stretches. Um, and it usually always coincides with finals week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. As, as someone who teaches on campus as well, but yeah. I would never have thought that there would be that many people who are missing and you're finding, I don't know why, maybe I was naive. I didn't think that it was like that. No, it, and it's not typically that busy, but you do get these stretches. But I mean, a, a typical year, you might have five or six cases for the year, okay. but sometimes you have a bunch and like, um, you know, it just that can, it can be really busy or really not. I mean, you can have a time period where you don't have to appear in court or anything. And then you might have to do a few in a couple of weeks. And I mean, that's just the way it is. We, I had one season, like a summertime season, where I helped the FBI and the state DOJ on searches for some clandestine burials that where they believe people who had been recently murdered might have been. I did a whole bunch of searches all summer trying to help out and dig holes and, and identify any bones that were found. We never found any mm. the whole summer. Mm. I mean, we did all these searches and we never found a single bone, um, which was nice for me because I didn't have to write any reports. Basically, <laughs> I just got to go mm -hmm. along. Um, but sometimes you find a ton, so it's uh, it's 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 highly highly variable, but it can be busy. And who are the who are the students who get to go with you? Who are these lucky few, and how do they get, how are they chosen? Well, it depends on what we need to do. So if we're going to go out and we're like say on a big search, and the search is for somebody for maybe a clandestine burial or somebody who went missing in a certain area. A lot of times law enforcement would like to have me take a bunch of students because they know how to identify bone. They're familiar with bone. And so, and then they're just that additional set of eyes. If we're doing a, a kind of a, a pedestrian survey, walking through the woods or fields, you know, kind of shoulder to shoulder scanning the ground. And so 
you know, I'll take basically anybody who's had my classes, who have been reasonable student, who I could trust to come along on one of these cases. And on some others that don't involve, you know, that kind of as large of a search or something, um, or maybe we're actually just examining some bones for law enforcement, I'll allow some students who have taken my classes, who've gotten good grades, who, you know, are, are also trustworthy to come along and just shadow me on, on that. And, you know, also ask them their opinion. So, I mean, mm. a lot of UWO students, I mean, get to participate in this and get to kind of build up a nice little resume, um, by the time they graduate looking into careers, which is a nice, a nice kind of hands-on real world feature of it. Fascinating. And you're currently working on, on a case now to identify how close are you to identifying this, uh, latest case? Uh, you know, I think this one, it's, it's hard to say, okay. but we're waiting on some records. So it could be another week or two, but yeah, I mean, you never know. And w one of the things that I think has been really fun about these cases is I've also, when we did the Starkey Swenson one, we made a podcast about that. And so we covered in a podcast, our search, the background on the case, and, uh, you know, kind of the methods that we were using. And so we generated a pretty big audience. And so we've actually started to do that to other cold cases in the area to just get some attention for them, just to try to help law enforcement because people are interested in, in cold cases in their area. And most of the time people want to help and not just students. So like people who are just generally interested. And so it's nice to get students involved. It's nice to get anybody involved who wants to help with these. It's just, it's, um, you know, it's, you want to help in any way you can for these people. And you have a great podcast. Just, just, to, to for you to for me to say that and tell us so tell us about how that de developed and uh where people can find that podcast as well yeah the podcast is called cold case frozen tundra and it's on any podcast platform so if you were listening to apple music or spotify mm -hmm. or amazon music whatever however you want to find it it's out there um but when we did the starkey swenson case we surprised i kind of expected my students to listen <laughs> i don't know maybe not that many other people but it ended up generating a pretty good sized following and we had tens of thousands of people listening in northeast wisconsin and so after that case we said well maybe we could cover another one and so we started to cover the disappearance of lori Deppis, who went missing at the fox river mall in 1992 and that hasn't resulted in any human skeletal remains or excavations or anything because nothing, she's never been found, and there's very little evidence on this case. But we actually have some information that's that law enforcement are using um, right now to to kind of relook at the case and look at some leads that were all generated just based on the fact that we decided to cover it, and people listened, and they told their friends, and then they came forward to to me and and uh, my my co-host on the podcast, and we're able to work with law enforcement hand in hand, turn the stuff over, and and hopefully you know break open a case that's almost 30 years old. Wow. That is great. That's great. Um, good stuff. And so you're busy, but it's a good busy. It is. It's the kind of busy that you want to be. And uh, you don't really mind being busy um, when it's this kind of stuff. I mean, it's partly thrill of discovery stuff. It's partly helping your community. Um, it's mysteries. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's trying to help get justice for people if you're doing the forensic stuff. And and all that kind of comes together. And so it's busy, but it's the exact kind of busy that I want to be. And I don't, I can't really complain. I can tell you that. Well, we thank you for taking time to talk to us today here on UWO Now. It's been great meeting you.
great conversing with you and talking about all the stuff that you do from Ukraine in the classroom and here in Wisconsin uh, helping law enforcement. It's been really uh, fun talking to you. Thanks for coming by. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, that's all today on UWL Now. I'm Wendell Ray. Until the next time.